ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to another special bonus edition of the Paul Ryder Tapes. I'm Angela Smith, I'm the ex-wife of Paul Ryder. These bonus episodes feature the full-length versions of the interviews that I did for the main series. This episode features the second interview that I did with Monday's drummer Gaz Whelan. Gaz and Paul were like brothers, ones that actually got on. And Gaz was one of the most special people in Paul's life. I caught up with him as he was rehearsing with his side project Yogi G and the Family Tree in Latch's Tough Gong Studio in Warrington. Oh shit, Phil, sorry. Oh, it's right. uh, okay if it's because like that, yeah. So tell me about the. Sorry, hang on, I forgot to press record on the, on the Zoom. <laughs> hey! Recording in it doesn't matter because Phil's recording you and we've got. It's sorry. just. So anyway, sorry. Is that latch? Is that latch? Yeah. Hey, uh, we were putting your. Don't game talking. <laughs> for God's sake. We were putting your story in the podcast the other day. Dating story, very, very, very funny. You see that? Very funny. You are funny for the first for the he's first got, hour. He's got a lot. Of... <laughs> <laughs> got to get on me tits. Oh, God, <laughs> right pair of windows. Leave me to it. <laughs> Uh, so my mum and Linda, Paul's mum, Linda Ryder, probably first met at one of the early Mondays gigs, probably probably one of the big ones because they weren't allowed to come to any other gigs. We didn't like family coming, apart from obviously Derek was always there. Uh, and then they hit off straight away. I think they had a, a mutual liking of, uh, of alcohol and music and rock and roll. So every Wednesday night, yeah, my mum used to go down to Linda's house for what they call rock and roll Wednesdays. And my mum would drink a bottle of rum and Linda would drink vodka bottle of vodka and they would play rock and roll music and that went on for 30 years 30 odd years they've been doing that yeah to this day but they wonder where we get it from eh? you know what you know what this if you've seen the Leonard Cohen documentary uh the last one uh, I can't remember what it's called and it says there's a woman on it talking about she says uh, musicians and and writers and all that she went you can always tell that you said with the males because they always have crazy mothers really oh that's interesting yeah. isn't it yeah, it was very cool. I mean, like early on when we used to go do all the gigs, yeah, like obviously Derek did everything, sound, drove, loaded the equipment, did everything. And Linda used to always make us sandwiches for the trip and because I'd eat meat, she used to say, there's some cheese for gas. So it was great. So it was all, it was all very, you know, back then we were all, we were all very close. It was all, it, well, you know, it's, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but we were. And you called her the butty queen. The, you said that, not me. You did, you called her the butty queen. 
Even Paul called her the Butty Queen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Woody Boy Queen. You want, do you want a butter? Yeah, that's used for the. <laughs> I find it really hard to fathom that Linda and your mum are eight. Like they're old ladies now, technically, but they, they're not. I can't relate to them like old ladies. It's weird, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they're not. Are they? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, my mum, my mum, she says, has got more going than me. Like she says. Like, what's your perfect night out? And I say, well, sat in a pub, in an old man's pub, about four people there with a pint of Guinness and a book. And she's like, you're bloody boring, you. You know, get out partying. And like, she goes out and has her friends and dances and all that. And I'm like, oh, I don't want noise. I'm like, Paul, don't want noise. I'm not here to sit there reading my book and drinking my, my Guinness on my own. So talk to me a little bit about how close... Paul mentioned that... You were particularly close to Derek growing up. Like you, he was almost as much as a father figure to you as your own father because you had so you you were together so often. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, when when we started, don't forget I was 15, 15, 16, So Derek was the one that he, we didn't know what we were doing. He knew how to set up. But we didn't even know how to plug in. I mean, the first drum kit I got, Derek set it up for me and he tuned it for me. So I don't know, and then he was, and and he was driving the van. He was touring. He was doing everything. And a look back, it was easy. It was easy for me and Mark. Mark worked with him, so Mark was very close to him. And I got on with him. We had we had a good. We had a. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was funny, but it must have been hard for Paul and Shaw. You know what I mean? To have the dad around all the time. He must have. I never. I never. I never thought about that. But it must have been really difficult. It must have been really hard for him. For me, it was easy. So I got. I, don't, I think I had one argument with Derek, and all the time we had. We had and that was over nothing, you know. We never, you know, we, I never argued with him. It was easy for me, but it must have been hard for Sean and Paul. Did Sean and Paul argue with him? Like, did did they have like father son type dynamics? Sean did more than Paul. Paul Paul was a little bit more relaxed, and I think Paul got on with him more. But Sean clashed with him more. I think Sean and Derek were, were more similar. And they, uh, Paul was close, a little similar as well, but Sean clashed more. Was Derek related to by the crew as one of the crew, or as Paul and Sean's dad? Like, how? <laughs> Uh, oh, hey, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, he wasn't really. It got to the point where we forgot he was the dad. I mean, that they didn't, but we kind of did. Well, yeah, there was always loads of in jokes and all that kind of thing, but it was always really respected. We always had loads of respect for him, and we, we, we used to joke about him and all that because we were a different generation. But it was only kind of harmless stuff. It was never any, you know, because we would have screwed without him. We would have screwed without him. Talk to me about the rivalry between the brothers. Ah, that's a that's a strange one because they kind of both would never admit they was one, and maybe I actually know that's a good question. It's, it's hard to say from the outside. Well, I'm sorry from the from the inside. Sorry, because. I didn't really see any competition until they were much older. I didn't notice it until much older. I just thought, brothers, you know, I, didn't, I had a younger brother, I didn't talk to him, you know, so, and I was younger, so they all kind of looked at me as just a little bit of a kid, maybe, so, it's kind of difficult, I don't know. I, I, was, I, I was closer to Paul, uh, so they would get into arguments and like, literally fist fights, and Mark, because his big would jump in the middle of them, and I had two fights with Sean, never had any fights with Paul, but that doesn't mean I, I got on with Sean as well early on in the day, early days. I got on with Paul. Got on, but they had a kind of. It was, I don't feel early on. It didn't seem to be a rivalry. Paul was the, Paul was in charge of the band early on. 
And that, and I think Sean was quite happy with that. You know, right. Paul was one that was really serious about it all. I think Sean, I would say it wasn't serious, but it wasn't as was a bit more carefree about it. So uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't really see a rival really on. Can you remember what the cause of any of those fights were? Can you remember? It had been over. It probably been over nothing. On the, the the last one they had was when we was in the Amazon jungle and the argument was over. Who had the biggest belly? And they actually had the bellies out and they were like, my belly's bigger than, no, mine's bigger than yours. No way. <laughs> and, you know, I was, seriously, it's really true. It started off about something else that ended up who had the biggest belly. <laughs> Though that when you saw the relationship between the two of them deteriorating, did it bother you? Did it did it affect you in any way? The relationship between us all deteriorated. You know, you know what really weird. And this is another real other cliche. Mark always kept himself on the outside, away from it all, wisely. But me, PD, Paul, and Sean were very close. And then Bez when he came in, Bez was always a free bird doing his own thing. And I think early on. And it's, you know, it's different. I've, 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 Sean be the singer and not playing an instrument, he was kind of outside from us, so it kind of what me and Paul being really, and PD being really close, then Sean and Bez. Accidentally, and I'd, so so that, them two not getting on, yeah, it did. But there's a kind of a bit of that with all of us. And like I say, it was like, it was really, and this is a real cliche, right? but I don't have an older brother, I had an older sister, so Paul was like an older brother to me. And I know that's a real cliche, but it really was. It really was. You know, we, like I said, we were very close and got on this, and then we, had, you know, we fell out over silly things. But it was like an older brother to me, so it was a, it was a band thing that I didn't, I didn't really. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't see it as them two. In fact, I didn't see him as brothers in the band. Not until after we reformed, probably, and we'd split up. Really, didn't see him as brothers in a band. Just two different members. And they, they weren't alike in any sense, really, were they? None of us, all had the same sense of humour. We all had a very similar sense of humour. Sean was the, uh, Paul was... The, the quiet... You see, it's kind of weird, because Paul's a quiet, you, you think Paul, Sean, Paul was a quiet one, and Sean was a loud one. And that was, on the surface that was the case, but she, they were both, all of us were shy, some of us were loud, some of us weren't. So they were very similar but very different as well. Like me and Paul were very similar but very different. And Sean and Paul were very similar but very different. We all kind of like the same thing. Was Sean shy deep down, would you say? I think Sean shied it down, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think I think even I think even Bez is probably. Mark isn't. Mark's not shy. But me, PD and Paul were definitely insecure and not insecure for the wrong, shy. I think Sean's shy as well. Yeah, I think Sean. Yeah, I think he's do shy. Not, do you not think everybody in the whole world is shy? It's just how well yeah. you mask it. You know what? Well, probably, yeah. Some people, some people with bravado, but some people, uh, I no, no, a lot of people are. Certainly a lot of people in the arts. Yeah, maybe you're right, yeah. But we definitely had a lot of imposter syndrome. I don't think we ever expected to to do anything. Paul probably did. He had, he had inner ambitions, but we probably didn't. And I think... Once we made it, we expected it to implode at any point. And I don't think Paul did. Paul saw this as what he, what he wanted and wanted it to carry on, you see. Maybe. Do you think the tensions between Sean and Paul 
ultimately added to the magic of the band or do you think it detracted? I personally think it detracted. Maybe at some level, maybe at some level it, it I, I, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think. I... So if there hadn't been that tension between them, how do you think things would have been different? Mm, yeah, it's hard to say. We did okay, so maybe boring, so maybe I'm contradicting myself. It's a tough one, yeah. It would escalate quickly and they'd get into like fist fights and it was kind of uncomfortable, you know, it wasn't nice to be around. Uh, but musically, Musically, I don't, I don't think it had an effect, but I think communication-wise it did. But with all of us, you know, I think we did the music and Sean did the lyrics and singing. And, and I look back and I think, well, he must have felt as an outsider. You know, I, I didn't think that at the time. I used to think, oh, don't be daft, you know, but I mean, looking back, maybe he did. And I think just maybe we didn't, uh, we didn't share enough to get each other. To get your opinion across, you had to fight for it rather than discuss it. I think that, you know, because, which is a shame, you know what I mean? Was, you know, or compromise so it didn't cause an issue between us all, so. Like I say, I didn't, I was thinking about this, I, 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 we didn't see him as brothers in the band, it was just two different members of the band. Do you think that it was more serious than your, your regular sibling rivalry or sibling spats? Like, do you think there was a darker, deeper um, thing going on? Uh. Yeah, pro I mean, in a band together, so you, 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 if you, oh, what, you just sound pretentious, you're creating art together, there's going to be, isn't there? So, I don't know. They were, they were close in age, weren't they? Well, what's the difference about... 19 months. Right, yeah. There, there was always, could uh, turn out and do each other. Right. They always turned out and dress each other. And out aftershave each other early on, remember that? The asphyxiation from the aftershave from the pair of them. You, 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 could, you could go in an hotel and you could you know which, which hotel room each of them was in. Because you could, you could smell it down the lobby. I remember getting in a, in a, in a lift once in, in New York and I could smell the aftershave. I got the one lift going up and it was Lagerfeld, so that, that was Sean's. And then coming down it was Hugo Boss and it was Paul's. So, did you get an impression though that there was something kind of deeper than your than you regular just brother to brother wrangling? Outside the band, they were they, 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 them and the respective partners would go on holiday together. They were friends, so they didn't have like it was weird because I, I remember Paul didn't have a group of male friends and Sean didn't have a group of male. You know, like they didn't go out and but they were older, so they, they both settled down. Sean was married when we formed the band, and then Paul was with a girl called Steph. So no, I just no. Then you know what? When I look back, they got on pretty well early days. They got on quite well. Okay, we're jumping ahead way here, but uh, Paul talked about Sean not wanting to do an album. Like why, why he thought Sean didn't want to do an album. Why do you think Sean didn't want to do an album? Doesn't want to do an what, album. What now? Yeah. With bands, it's, it's different now. Now I've been out of it, and now I'm, I'm, I've got another band that I'm playing guitar and singing. It's different because you, when you're writing, when you're doing your music, what we did when the band, because it was all of us writing, you end up arguing these five, four or five opinions. And you end up compromising. So I don't think he wants to go through all that again. Because he, he doesn't have to, because he didn't have, probably have to with Black Grape. And uh, obviously, Mark usually goes along with stuff, wasn't real, wasn't real, but me and Paul would be quite opinionated. So maybe it's because of that. Is that what Paul said? I don't know, what did Paul say? Um, 
he said that he didn't want he didn't think Sean wanted to help him and the rest of the band make money <laughs> like he just wanted to have it all to himself and he, he he didn't have respect for them for for you all as musicians he'd rather work with other people and try and pass it off as a money like he, he that he just didn't have respect for for the musicians uh, maybe I don't know maybe I don't it's hard to say in it uh, it's definitely the I don't know that you can only speculate that. Def definitely the the hassle of it all. Cause I think the the combination was all arguing, the, the the chaos was arguing made what 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 made what was successful. But when you get to a certain age, you can't be arsed of it. Whether it's a thing about not wanting to work with us or having respect, I you know what I don't know. I really don't know. Couldn't you all come up with the music and then give it to him, and he comes up with the lyrics and the melodies? Like it's do, does he even need to be involved in the actual? Mechanics of writing. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, yeah. So maybe it is that. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah, or maybe he just didn't like what we do with something. I don't know. You know, it's. I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to be dead, very diplomatic here. I don't know, but I just don't. It's hard, you know, because it's somewhat speculates. I don't. I really don't know. I mean, what do I really think deep down? Uh, yeah, I don't. I just don't think he, he can be arsed working with us. Maybe. It, it, it bothered me at the time, and then after that, I, I, I don't. Think, I started to think, and I remember talking to Paul and saying, even if everyone's agreed on doing an album, if you're not in the, a perfect place, I think it's a disaster. It's a recipe for disaster. Okay, go back again to the very beginning. Tell me about how you came to be a part of the band. Right, I was at school, and I would try to form a band. Uh, I'd had a bad injury to my hand, so I had to give up playing guitar. So I bought a drum kit, but I hadn't, I, I hadn't learned how to play it. And there was a girl in my class called Bev, who'd come from an, a military family in Germany. She came, she had an older sister called Denise, who's about five years older, who was marrying a lad called Sean. And I'd seen him around. She remember Sean with bleached hair and having like, they looked like these Bowie kind of kids, you know, they, they stood out. And, uh, and I'd met Paul years earlier, very briefly, because I had friends who went to his school. And Paul was a couple of years older than me. Sean was about five years older. And and then there's a lad in my class called Nigel Day, and he had an older brother called Mark Day, who was five years older, who was also in a band. And they were both saying they need a drummer coming and join his band. And I thought, it can't be the same band, because Sean was this kind of Bowie-type thing, and, and Mark was into heavy metal queen, so they can't be in the same band. So I, it, it confused me. So they said, oh, it's coming down to real. So then when I eventually went down, there there was Mark and, and Sean in the same room, and, and I went in. And, uh, and Paul was very quiet, but it was obvious that he was kind of directing everything and sussing me out, and especially what I was wearing. And then I think we went for a drink afterwards. Then the second rehearsal, me and Paul talk, got to talk about Echo and the Bunny Men and really hit off, and it was just, we got on from that day one, and that was it. Did you have any idea when you were walking into that room that day that it would change your life as it as it did? Like, Did you have any sense of... This is something really big that's going to be. No, 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 not at all. No, never, never. None of us believed anything like that. I think Paul's the only one that ever thought that. Really? So it was all a big surprise to you when things actually started to fall into place. Yeah, even then, I didn't take it. and I think that was frustrating for Paul as well. I we, we didn't take it as serious. Talk about the days of rehearsing in Mark's mum's loft. 
I, I don't think we did that many there, you know. We probably only did about five or six there. It was a tiny loft in a terrace house. It used to go in and they had a, a piano. It was a terrace house, but the, the room was so small. They had a piano, like, the piano nailed up against the wall so you could get past. It was off the wall. It was funny because we had a piano in our house and Paul and Sean had a piano in their house. It's really weird. So everyone had a piano in our house. My sister used to play piano, my older sister. Uh, and it was a, used to pull the, the, the ladders down and go up and it was this tiny room. It was there. It was Nigel's room. It used to have a stair, but it was tiny. I think we only did about five or six rehearsals. We didn't do many rehearsals there. Were you allowed to smoke and drink and things like when you were young? Like yeah. Yeah? Smoke and drank everywhere. Though Paul didn't, ironically, Paul didn't smoke then. I didn't either. Tell me what he, why he said he didn't smoke. Yeah, so that's, we was in the Morning Star, the pub, we used to go in after rehearsals and he was, I was 16, 15, 16 and Paul was 18 and most people smoked. Sean, I remember Sean smoked number six and I remember saying to Paul, how come you don't smoke? And he said, uh, oh, that to and fro with the arm just seems like too much, too much exercise. Yeah, you because, know, you know, he's never broke a sweat in his life. He drove everywhere. I've never seen him walk far. I mean, the furthest I've ever seen him walk is the furthest, the furthest he'd park away, park away from where we were. You know, he drove everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> it's true. Wouldn't it's walk true. anywhere, drove everywhere. And even when he was like 18, was he the same? Yeah. Because he used to play yeah. rugby when he was at school. He was really good at rugby, so he must have been pretty fit at that point. No? Really? Apparently. I never knew that. I never knew that. Yeah, he was really good at rugby. Really? Yeah. He was, yeah. But this was when he was at school, not when he was in the band. I never knew that. I never knew that. I never knew he played rugby. Yeah? Yeah? I'd never, I'd never seen him walk on grass. <laughs> what was that one? Oh, I don't know. But maybe one called Red or Weekend Starts Here or some Red, I think, dude. We used to do a couple of Joy Division covers in a Depeche Mode one, then we did a couple of our own. Uh, quite poppy, actually. I mean, but kind of. But the, all the early songs are bass driven. I mean, I'm not saying all these things because it's about Paul, but it's, it's true, they were. They were all bass driven. But then again, New Order was bass, you know, and Joy Division were bass driven. Them kind of bands, some of the bands that we liked then. And the book Echo and the Bunnymen were bass driven, you know, so. So uh, I can't remember what it was called, maybe Red, a song called Red, I think. Or, uh, what was the other one called? Uh, Comfort and Joy. That's some weird ones, yeah. So were you in the band when there was Matt Carroll around, or had he already gone by the time you joined? Well, Matt's not officially left yet, has he? He's never been told, never been told, never been told. No, he'd left, he'd left then, he'd left, yeah, it was just, it was just uh, Paul, Sean and Mark. About a year in, PD started coming to rehearsals, but he wanted to be the, and then announced he wanted to be the bass player. And then Sean said, you can't, our kid's a bass player. And then, we and then PD said, well, I want to be the drummer. He said, you can't get the drummer. He said, oh, so I said, you can be the keyboard player. We haven't got a keyboard player. And PD was like, no, that's for weirdos. So, has he got a keyboard player? He had like a little Casio keyboard, it was that big. And Derek built him a big uh, a, a keyboard stand, which was twice the size of the keyboard. But, but when PD came, and he couldn't really play, he learned to play as we went on the fly, which a lot of people did in the 80s, you know, Depeche Mode thing, he was all that one finger thing. He changed the sound of the band, he really did. He had a big influence, PD. No, you know, maybe he didn't, he didn't realise he did. But we kind of changed, you know, it kind of changed the, the style of it, you know. 
Okay, so you you um, rose from the ranks of Mark's Loft to rehearsing in a school. Tell me about the school that you used to. Rehearse. Well, it's all same school. It's a school I'd learned to read and write in, ironically. The very school, learned, the very room I'd learned to read and write in, and right near where the desk where I was when I was four or five was where my drum kit was up where we first started the band, which is really weird. It was an old church school. Uh, and Mark's neighbour was a cleaner. That's how we had the keys and he used to rent it off her. Now, Paul tells a story about a record company executive coming to watch you. Tell me about that incident. So Paul used to send these cassettes off to all the record companies. No, it's Paul did all that and info. And then some record label got back in touch. London Records it was, ironically. Was it the publishing? No, it was London because we went with the publishing then, London. And they said they're going to come up. And the, one of the guy, one of the head of A&R, I can't remember his name, Derek knew him because he'd signed, I think Paul had sent it to him because he'd signed a few bands from Manchester. So they arranged to come up. And we, it was an old school. It was like an old church. It had a big bay window. So we'd set up playing. And they turned up and they were from down south and they were always a bit nervous coming up north anyway. And it was in an area that was okay. It wasn't in a bad area or anything. But they passed and we said, the car's okay outside. We're like, yeah, fine. It was a fine area. It wasn't a bad area or anything. And they came in and literally... Halfway through the first song, a brick came through the gable end window. And I think it was an old girlfriend of mine, I'm not sure. Because she used to hang around there, we'd fallen out. And they all dived on the floor like we were under attack. And we got, we said, it's fine, we got up and... Uh, <laughs> and they, they went and checked the cars and they came back and they said, uh, does that normally happen? And Derek said, uh, yeah, but they must be getting good. So they said, why? He said, because... Because it was only half a brick this time, something ridiculous, something stupid like that. We were all laughing, but they were scared to death. And then they let and they said to us, We'll sign you if uh, if you get an image. And we were like, Well, this is what we, how we dress. They said, No, you've got to have an image, you know, like Culture Club. We all just went, Oh, fuck off. And then they got in touch about two weeks later and said, They'd sign us on a deal if, if we got a if we changed our image and got a stylist. And we all just categor categorically just said, no chance, you know. The clothes are important as the music for us then. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we stuck by that. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't know, Paul didn't say that. I didn't know that you'd been actually been offered a deal by them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how good a deal it was, but they said we're not happy to go to negotiations. If On condition yeah. that you get a stylist. I mean, yeah, and they were talking like cultural and all that, yeah. What so on we like, earth would they have dressed you up as? Duran, Duran. But that was it, and we all just said no straight away, no. I mean, it was kind of a surprise that anyone took any interest in us, so it wasn't any big deal, you know, it wasn't like we'd been knocked back loads of times, so we were just like, no, absolutely not, no. Amazing, I didn't know that at all. That's yeah. bonkers, yeah. bonkers. Okay, tell me about your first gig. We've, we've spoken to Jason about it and we've spoken to Kingo about it. So there's a lot of talk about this first gig. Tell me about it from your perspective. Apparently, someone went in Kingo's Barbers this week. He said, doing podcasts and calling me from LA now. He said, I'm going to have to get some merch together. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Uh, it was at the, and again, it was at the Walder Community Centre and ironically, it was a place where I'd gone in as a... in a... Nursery, I've got nursery in that room, which is really weird. So it's, uh, yeah, I know, it's really, really strange. And it was a Thursday night, and we did three Joy Division songs, one Depeche Mode song, and two of our own. One song called Saigon, we was obsessed by Vietnam, and this was this TV show on late at night. 
And we did a song about Vietnam, which we really liked, but Sean hated it. And his lyrics were brilliant, but he hated it, so we never did it again. So we did that. And he kind of just passed everyone by. The people just went, everyone, all the local kids came and watched it. It was like, mm, all right, you know. I think, you know, it was the height of Duran Duran and, and uh, pop music rather than kind of, you know, I don't think most people had heard of Joy Division around there. Or so the people weren't impressed. So he was he's kind of, he kind of just. It was kind of just no, nothing of a gig, but we just to get a gig under our belt. It was fun. It was brilliant. And then that's when PD joined afterwards, because we went outside. And he wouldn't let anybody near us to talk to us. We said we got to get him. In, got to get him in the band. Or so yeah. That it was. It was a very. It was like a twenty-minute set. He wouldn't let anyone near you. No, my band. It's all, I don't remember it, but everyone was saying that everybody's going. It's my band. Keep away. Keep away. I don't remember that. But that's what everyone else says happened. So someone said, you've got to get him in the band. So that night, we went to the pub afterwards and asked him to join the band. I don't remember him doing that, but everyone said, even Matt, everyone says that's what he did. I can't remember, so... Because oh, he was protecting yeah. you. He was being protective of yeah. you. Yeah. Brilliant. Maybe he wanted to be your manager at the time. No, I think he wanted to be in the band. Oh, <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so tell me about the recording of the very first single. You did a single first, was it with Mike Pickering? Mike Pickering in Berry, and we did. We had a few songs. There was one called I can't remember, "Delightful," which is like a pop. We had about five songs, and it's Mike Pick chose three: "Delightful," "Oasis," and is it "This Feeling." This feels like I think. Yeah, did Bernard did Bernard Sumner do produce one of them as well? He did "Freaky Dancing." It was great, first time in the studio. It was just one day in Berry, we recorded them three songs. With Oasis was a song we liked, but the fact we chose delightful. It wasn't wasn't very different than what was out at the time. It kind of came and went with that with a whimper, you know. It wasn't, bit, you know, but at least we'd, we'd started, you know. Okay, and then uh, tell me about when you were in the studio with John Cale. John Cale. So John, me, me and Phil Sachs had seen John Cale at the Hacienda, and we loved him. We all loved the Velvet Underground, but me and Phil were... John Cale fans where the rest of them were Lou Reed. And we liked his solo stuff. Paul hated his solo stuff and John, they all hated his solo, but me and Phil loved it. And we went to see him at the Hacienda and then Phil, I think Tony Wilson might have been there, got into Tony Wilson and said, oh, we've got to go with John Cale. And he, he produced, I can't remember who else, he produced, produced a few people. And uh, I think Iggy Pop and a few, I can't, I can't remember, I'm, I could be wrong, I can't remember. So we agreed to do it and uh, it was just, oh, we were bothered about, we had three weeks in London paid for. We were in this bed sitting, near Swiss Cottage, something park it was called, I can't remember what it was called. With a load of Geordie builders, we used to go back at night and just drink with them till the early hours. Uh, and we used to walk from Swiss Cottage, Belsize Park we stayed, we just watched, cut through Swiss Cottage, Belsize Park to, it was next to the Town and Country Club, remember the Town and Country Club in Kentish Town? Yeah. It was right next door to there. And we used to walk there every day and it was in, it was like a community studio and Joe Cale was in there and he was, he was going through. He was going through a clean period. He was drink, eating clementines all day, and extra strong mints, and we were just getting started, drinking, drug taking, and smoking. You know, so we, it was. It was. A, it was a clash from the start. He didn't get us. I mean, classically trained. We recorded everything. And he said that's it, and then we went the next day. And he said, "Oh, let's start again." We didn't really have much contact with him. Didn't really get on with him that much. Didn't really have a lot of. He said in real. He said, "I think he was a bit." Yeah, we didn't really, we didn't really make a lot of connection with him, really. He just, he just kind of acted as engineer. Yeah, it was not that was kind of, yeah, a bit disappointing, really. What do you think of the work that he did, though? Probably good for what he could get out of us. He was, he was, he was good. He was just probably us. 
we were, they weren't the easiest to work with. And he just did, and Dave Young, who was his engineer, who, was, who we worked with, who ended up doing, I think, 24-hour party people, just didn't really understand us, didn't get it. Because he was saying, I remember him saying to us, the bass and drums are like, uh, are like really slow grooving and dragging it back. Uh, is that, because you don't know what you do, now, is it on purpose? And we was like, we was like well, it's kind of like, we're kind of doing stone disco. And he was like, but you're an indie band. And we were like, well, we don't see ourselves as an indie band. And they didn't get that. We wanted to be this kind of like velvet underground funk band, if that makes sense. Bummed. Let's go on to Bummed. So that was a different kettle of fish to John Cale, wasn't it? Working with Martin Hannett. So we hadn't met Martin Hannett. So uh, Martin Hannett was a bass player. So we wanted me and Paul to go up first to the studio. We'd, we'd booked in a studio called the Slaughterhouse in Driffield near Scarborough, North Yorkshire. So we had to pick him up, factory hired a car, and they said the only request from Martin Hannett was no Ford or no red car, because he hated red Fords. So of course me and Paul requested a red Ford and got one. We pulled up at his house in Charlton, Martin was outside smoking, and he just went, yeah, pair of bastards. We're, we're gonna get on fine, and we did. We got, we got to Driffield, and it, the pubs were open. This was before the times when pubs were open all day. And the pubs were open all day. So we get to the studio, and the guys, we said, why? And the first, he said, do you want to have a look around the new studio? And we were like, no, why the pub's open all day? And he said, uh, it's market day, they're open all day. We went, all day? He went, yeah, we went, we'll go to the pub then. He said, well, do you know what, tour around the studio and see what equipment we've got? And we went, no. So we get to the pub and Martin said, oh, I've not drunk, I've not drank alcohol for five years, four or five years, can't remember at the time what it was. He said, I've been on the, I've not been, I've not drank. I'll just have a Coca-Cola. Okay. I remember Paul saying, they've got a Stella on draft. So we ordered two pints of Stella and Martin, and Martin and I went, hmm, go on then, I'll have a Stella. So, so we had one, this was like three o'clock in the afternoon. Still there at half past 12 at night, midnight. We, kind of, we just drank right through the next day. And that became, we used to go there for breakfast. It was right next to the studio. We used to go there for breakfast every day. The beginning of the end. And then it, it was great bum because it was in this little studio. Martin Annette didn't know, he hadn't been in the studio for, for years. It had been kind of semi-digital. And the young, the bung boffing kid there was like, this bloke doesn't know what he's doing. And we were like, and we were unsure whether he'd, he'd cut it anymore, you know, because things had changed. And uh, and then about five days in, the, the guy in the studio went, yeah, he knows what he's doing, he's, he's brilliant, but he's, he's just he's out of touch with all the, with the technology. And uh, we had a, a back room where we had a, a little sound system, a little, like, you know, uh, get out blasters, and we used to have, we had dance music from the Hacienda cassettes and the DJs and Mike Big just on, and it was on 24 hours a day, on loop. And that, there was a party going on there all the time for like weeks, and you'd go in and out and go in and out, and that was it. And then, but the music was nothing like that, but that we, that's what I remember from it. And people coming up from Manchester and see people from Manchester around this little, this little uh, farming village. It was, it was quite funny. I enjoyed Bumba's, Bumba's a really good time, really good time. Yeah, and how was Paul during that time? Well, that was the Ecstasy album of all things, so everyone was in really good mood, everyone, everyone, everyone was getting along, everyone, everything was really pleasant, it was really pleasure. When you say the Ecstasy album, do you mean that you were all doing Ecstasy, or just that that was the era? We were all doing Ecstasy, and it was starting to be the era, yeah. But it was just, it was just a really good, it was just a really good, and we used to, you know, like, if you had a bit of time off, we'd drive the two, three hours back to Manchester to the Hacienda for the night, then drive back up. And with a few people and back, it was just a really good vibe. It was just a really good time. That was a, some of the best times that Bummed album. 
and then the album was a big hit wasn't it that kind of launched you what point did you feel like oh actually this is working now we're actually making strides like where did you feel like you, you'd be probably 24 hour party people were single that maybe after tart tart party people that kind of got a tart tart was played on the chart show on a sunday morning and it got to number one in the indie charts indie charts was like kind of a big thing then so that was when we started to gain people coming to the gigs. I mean, the first places we had an audience were London, Blackburn and Leeds. Not we couldn't get arrested in Manchester. Us and the Stone Roses couldn't get arrested. We are hated in Manchester. It was all that jingly jangly pop and they hated us. The Manchester Press, Manchester Radio Station, they all hated us, yeah. And what changed that then? Tony the Greek was playing some of our stuff. John Peel, John Peel session probably. John Peel session was really good. That got us, that, that, that helped a lot. John Peel session was really good. Yeah, Tony the Greek was one of the few people in Manchester. He had a radio show at night time. I think it might have been on Piccadilly. He was one of the few that he was like the kind of Manchester kind of John Peel. He was the first one that used to play us and the Stone Roses. But wasn't he also your press officer as well? I don't know. He might have been. We had no idea. We didn't take any. I don't know. Was it? Yeah. There was this really brilliant on YouTube. There's a schools program, and it's hilarious. Like it's it's four schools, and it's about the mechanics of. The business of the music business through the eyes of the Happy Mondays and their crew, and there's a there's a great bit of Tony. So to, oh, I've seen that bit. That's the bit I've seen Tony Wilson talking. Tony Wilson, Tony the Greek is saying, I think it's Tony. One of them saying they can't carry on not turning up for interviews, you know, and, and being and being unprofessional like this. And Tony Wilson says, well, to be honest, I quite like that. And it's just yeah, that sounds like Tony Will, yeah, yeah. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. But the fact that he was part of a schools programme just was amazing to me. I know, it's I've seen clips of it, I know, I can't watch it, it's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, Why can you not watch it? I can't, I can never watch anything of ourselves, I can never watch. Really? Yeah. Do you remember, Paul talked about how significant it was that some suddenly MTV were taking the band seriously. Do you remember that being a thing? Like being excited about being on MTV? No. No. <laughs> Do you remember it being a... He said that the first time you were on TV was on the other side of Midnight. No, it was on the chart show, but the first TV you actually performed yeah. in was the other yeah. side of Midnight. Do you remember being yeah. excited about that? Yeah, that was brilliant. That was a Sunday afternoon as well. That was a full all-day Sunday. Yeah, yeah, really, but nerves, yeah. But I enjoyed... That was a great day as well, yeah. Yeah. I remember that, yeah. And that was literally because Tony was the presenter and he also ran the record label and he, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel then that you'd made it? Like, what what, what was the point where you thought, oh, we've made no. it? No, because like you say, Tony got, I think Tony introduced us by saying, what does he say, so like, this isn't nepotism, it's pure devotion to the cause or something, I think, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. So no, we just thought we got on it because it was Tony, it was factory, you know. So no, not really. I remember the first time I thought, we kind of made it. We was on. We was in the in the van going down to Brighton. I think Hallelujah just got in the charts. On the, remember they used to count down on a Sunday night, the chart show. And uh, we arrived there, and there was people outside the venue waiting to see us. And then we got in, and the and and the and, and the venue people were like, "What can we get you? What can we get you? Do you need anything?" And usually it's like, you know, you had to hassle for anything. And then suddenly it was like all of a sudden, you know, what can we get? You know, they wanted to. And I remember that. I remember that distinctly. It was a Sunday night in Brighton. Yeah, tell me about the day that you did Top of the Pops with the Roses. 
So we got there. We we didn't really know the roses that well. They'd be, they kept us apart in, in town. They were kind of from a different... Like we used to see Manny would come in the Hacienda sometimes. We didn't really know him that well. We met him... As we, as we arrived there, they were on stage doing their run-through. We walked in and, he, and we'd both gone to Richard Krem, or Dick Cream as we called him, Richard Krem to get our kitted out. And he'd give us all these designer clothes. And I'd got this black Gaultier top that zipped up. And Ian had the red version, exactly the same. We walked in and we just went, oh, no, yeah. And then we met him in the bar and had a drink. And we got him with him really well. And I'm just really, that was really nervous. I was disappointed because we thought the BBC bar, I thought it'd be full of like, you know, Nazis and Nazi soldiers and, and Roman soldiers. And, you know, people dressed as cowboys and Indians, you know, and all that. And he was just a load of office staff. It was really boring. And then... Uh, we did, we did it all, because I remember we really, we couldn't hear it, couldn't hear the the, feed, the play feedback, the playback on stage, having some time, and really, because you wouldn't grow up watching Top of the Pops since you was a kid, and I was scared to death, really, really petrified. And I think Paul, well, we all were, we was all petrified, I think, and... Uh, How can you mime the drums if you can't hear what's going on in your ear? Well, yeah, if you, if you, if you watch it, and it starts off with the drums, it starts off and you can see, like, everyone's a little bit, yeah, it's hard, and you think, you when you look back, and you know with experience, no one cares, no one sees, no one's looking, no one really bothers. But at the moment you think you're the centre, of you, not you yourself, but what you're doing is exposed to everything, you know what I mean? And you're like... And then we had... I remember we... Uh, we stayed behind afterwards, and then Tina Turner was on doing a, a pre-record for the next show. And me and Paul all said, oh, we've got to go and see Tina Turner. It's Tina Turner, you know, I can Tina Turner, got to go and see her. And we walked out and Paul went for a cig and we, it got locked up, we lost him. So we only mean, probably just walking slow behind, you know what he's like. And me and Ian Brown went in and watched her do this thing here and she walked past and Ian Brown went, yes, Tina. And she went, oh, you English boys. And I remember something like that. He says he said something else, but I think that's what she said. And Paul was really gutted and annoyed at us. He thought we'd left him on purpose. And uh, that's all I remember. It was just a great day, but really, really nervous and scary day, that. That's probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life. I was talking about, about this to Manny earlier, how there was there was no bitterness or rivalry at all between you and the Roses. Like that's kind of quite incredible really when you think when you think about it. Like you really could have been pitted against each other, couldn't you? Well, well, well when we got there, we we met him in the bar and had a drink and we said, you know, no one really knows who we are. So me and Manny were gonna swap places. In fact, for the next rehearsal I went up to play drum uh, to play bass and Manny was gonna play drums. And uh, we thought they wouldn't know the bass player and drummer, they're not going to know the difference in there. Uh, and we, uh, I actually think I actually got his guitar on mech and Manny might, or one of, one of the, or he might say, I can't remember a long time, one of us actually got on stage, I think it might have been me because they were rehearsing before. And someone had heard and said to the producer, they hadn't even noticed the producer, and they, they said, if you do this, you'll never, neither of you'll ever be on telly again. So we're like, hmm. uh, Recording Pills and Thrills, tell me about LA. <laughs> Oh, wow. I remember we arrived the first... We, the, was it, he, always, he always remembered where we stayed, Paul. I think it was Pasadena way. Was it Pasadena way? Burbank. Burbank, that was it. But it's the other side of LA to Hollywood, isn't it? Uh, so we used to drive there every day. And I remember it was arriving the first day and there's a traffic jam leading off the motorway and there's a, someone up front arguing with these these builders and it was a big fight we pulled off eventually get to the studio and then after that later Bess comes running in I had the car I had the car I just got into a fight on the motorway like Christ I've only been here a day and uh, and 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 thing he'd been in the studio I said to the guy 
who'd been in the studio before, and he said, uh, Whitney Houston had been in. And I said, oh, that must have been boring, Whitney, because she was like this. And he went, oh, no, it was crazy. We told us all these stories, and we were like, no, nah, we thought we'd been sarcastic. How little did we know? And that was uh, that was a good atmosphere as well. We said the book. But I remember being at the, what was them apartments called again? Oakwood Apartments. Paul got married there as well, and Bez, he had to come in to get me and PD, and Bez went to the wrong block and knocked on the wrong door. We came out, me and PD, and they'd gone. I remember Paul spending, I remember leaving one day, he was in the jacuzzi, which is at ground level. He said, have you got a light, guys? I went, no, and I'd been out all day, come back, and he went, have you got a light? I went, your room's there, have you not got out? He went, nah, just be getting lights off people going past. And he literally, laid, he must have been in the jacuzzi for eight, ten hours. <laughs> How do you get on with Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne? Well, Paul Oakenfold's nice. <laughs> Steve Osborne was like the tall, skinny guy. He had like big eyes and like a nervous twitch. And because he had these big eyes, Paul called him Yikes. Paul nicknamed him Yikes. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because Paul would say, Oh, Yikes. And I knew what he meant straight away. And I'd just cry. Like, you know, you knew, you knew, you knew with his. Did uh, he have a name for Paul Oakenfold? We didn't actually, no. No, we didn't. He had, yeah, I remember he turned up in a. He had a car, he had, he had a. A red Mustang convertible, he went, we was all like, you fucking cockney. Of course you have, you know what I mean? But he was lovely. He was really, really sweet, Paul Okafor. I must say, really sweet. We didn't have a nickname for him, actually. It's funny, he was one of the few people who didn't. We didn't have a nickname for him. No, we didn't. But he was lovely, Paul Okafor. He was really... And he shot... And he, was, Paul got him really well, because he knew his old funk records and soul records. So Paul got him really well. And he used to have a booth and he used to play records. Now, we got him, Oka was lovely. Really nice bloke. Yeah. And what do you think of what he did to the music? Like, how, how much of an influence would you cre credit him? A lot. I mean, he was... Steve Osborne did all the technical stuff. Okafor would play records and say, listen to this groove, listen to that. And he got... But what he did, like, God's Cop, that drum groove, was really Okafor was playing with these old soul records. But like I say, it was, it was perfect for Paul because the songs that Paul knew or liked or didn't know they were old ones. So we got with him really well. I think a massive yeah. influence on that album. I, 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 actually, at the time, I didn't think he did. We kind of give all the credit to Osborne, but looking back, Okafold had a massive influence on it. And I think it was Bez's idea to get Okafold and get a DJ, because Bez had been out in a beef and said, the DJs, Okafold, they're, like, they're producing dance records, I don't know why they shouldn't produce bands. I'm sure it was an off-the-cuff comment by Bez. Really? How? Yeah. So, any memories of any nights out, particularly any, any antics that you and Paul got up to when you were in LA? That you are a gossip, don't you? I remember, <laughs> I remember when Soul to Soul were playing at, uh, it wasn't the Hollywood Bowl, it was another, another place. No, it was indoors, it was a bigger, a bigger arena. So we, we turned up there and I don't know what we'd had. We'd had something, I can't remember, I can't remember what it was. What did we had? What had we, what had we taken? Taken something. And we turned up there and he was like, we got on the guest list through through record label in America. And obviously seven of us, all off our nut and drunk. And we turn up and obviously it's America, Soul to Soul, we're the only white people in the audience. And we're at the, we're like halfway up at the back and about three songs in, we're all just like dancing off our head. And the crowd are turning, looking at us. And then once someone from Soul to Soul points up with the singers and he's like, and they're getting like, you know, and like they're looking at us, people looking at us, and then, then they're back watching the band, you know, and all that. Uh, and then afterwards, there was a party at the hotel. We got there, and J Jazzy B won't let us in. One of the dancers was from Manchester. From my side, he said, he said, you can't let it in. You, you, you ruined the show. <laughs> <So>. Ruined <laughs> the show? Why? Because, Why? People, 
because people were fascinated by these seven white limeys dancing in the middle of the audience. The first week we got there, midweek, because we were staying at the Roosevelt on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, no, uh, it's Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Literally on the corner. And uh, a bit tacky. Which is, the hotel was great, but the place was tacky. And uh, Paul took me to a... It might have been the Ritz around the corner to see the chilli peppers. I hadn't seen the chilli peppers. I'd never seen them before. And they were just, I think they might have blood sugar matching out. It might, it was early, it was 1990. And uh, he said, you love this. And they blew me away. They were just uh, mind blowing. I remember Paul got me into them. He, he got, he'd arranged tickets or passes, guests to go in. So I think the second night there, I was like, oh, I don't want to go. He went, no, you've got to come. You've got to come and watch him to influence the album. Yeah. So I remember that. Yeah. And tell me about Paul's wedding in Calabasas. Well, I didn't go, did I? Because we was waiting to go, so we was, we was ready to leave to go up to the hills to get married in Calabasas, we didn't know. And uh, me and PD were in a room, so they said, we'll send, we'll come up and knock on the door, we're ready to leave. So I mean, PD sat there like, no one's come, so we walked down like half an hour later, they'd gone. And later, he said, we knocked on your door, he didn't answer, so Paul was a bit upset, obviously. And then, about a year later, we talked about it, Bez, he sent Bez up, he sent Bez up to come and get us. Bez went, yeah, you were in the first block right there. We went, no, we were in the second block. He's knocking on the wrong door, weren't he? So you missed the wedding? But yeah, because Bez thought it was just thought it was funny. Though. But at least Paul, Paul knew he was Did you not even go to the party afterwards? Yeah, because it was round the pool and Paul was in the hot tub all night. <laughs> oh, right, that was when he was in the hot tub. Right, OK. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about being on tour and what Paul was like in those days when you were on tour? Uh, he was always stressing, always stressing to make sure everything was right and a bit annoyed at us all not taking it too serious. He used to take it really serious, always. But you have to have one of them back in the band like that, you know, you have to. And he used to get stressed that we all didn't take it too serious. So he used to be stressed a lot. Not, not stressed as in, you know, he wasn't kicking off and getting angry, but you could see you get the disappointment stare off him, you know, the disappointment look. Oh, really? What was that? But you could see he was, he'd get stressed about how things were. He was always asking questions about the venue, or, you know, about, he, he, was, he used to get stressed. Uh, at the time, so I didn't realise this, this is with hindsight. Didn't take much notice of it, you know, I was younger and drinking too much. Now we need to talk about Barbados and that whole debacle. Now, Paul had very fond memories of Barbados, said it was great, loved Chris and Tina, and basically said the only issue was Sean not really being able to produce his lyrics. But other than that, and he really loved that album as well. I don't know how, do you agree with that? Are you, was it the same for you? Or? Yeah, yeah, and, 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 yeah. I mean, Paul was ill though, the first, the first week we got there, Paul was really ill, having really bad stomach pains. And they took him to the hospital, got him checked and all that, and they, it turned out later that he thought, I think it happened years later, and they said it was anxiety. We had really, I mean, really bad stomach. I mean, really. We thought he had appendicitis. Uh, didn't he have pancreatitis for a while? I think he'd, he'd had a... Oh, did he actually have that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. He, I vaguely remember. I mean, he was a bit of a hypochondriac sometimes, wasn't he? So he never quite knew. I don't know. I am, so I don't know. <laughs> Proper pair, the two of you. Proper pair, yeah. Uh, I have fond memories of it. I got there the first week, so we were in with Chris and Tina doing it the first week, so we didn't see all the madness. And then after, I mean, the first day we hired a car, and me and Paul just drove around the island. Uh, and then 
we started recording. So we, we, we weren't privy to it all the first week. We were stuck in the studio. Right. And what was it like for you? What was your perception of the whole time there? The old trip. It was fine at first. Then Vanessa came over. We were in a house in the middle of the Barbados. Then we used to drive in and check every day. And you could see it was getting a bit nuts each day. You know, the cars upside down and... Uh, it was it was a bit nuts and like locals walking around dressed like they were from Salford and it was very weird and it was uh, the the best was one day we'd gone in the in the studio and outside the studio was a swimming pool on a high higher level. Beth was already in the hospital because he'd, he'd turned the jeep over and smashed his arm in. And I went and someone said, "Come have a look at this." And we went outside to the swimming pool and they'd made a crack den out of the sun lounges. Like a proper crack then, <laughs> just smoke coming out of the sun lounges. And the distance was this jeep turned upside down that Bez had left, and the, the rental company couldn't go and get it because it was in the middle of the jungle, you know. But then I, I had fond memories of it. I had fond memories of it. But I kind of resigned myself to the fact that it was over, you know, it was over the band, so I just thought, you know. But yeah, my favourite album as well. Every, I think everyone, I think it's Sean's the only one who don't like that album. Everyone, I think it's Bez's favourite album, Rowetta's. Paul's mine, yeah. I don't know about Mark, but yeah. No, I really like that album too. I mean, I didn't, I didn't like the tracks so much that didn't have lyrics on them. I think that. They were, I just, think some of his best lyrics as well. I think, but then I think, I don't know. There's only one song that didn't end up with vocals on, isn't there? Sunshine oh. and Love is my favourite Monday song. Like, like you, you know, you you like that one as well, don't you? I wanted that to be the single, and I was outvoted by Sean and Paul actually outvoted because they, yeah. I wanted that as the first single. And then when that came out, it's when Factory lost their distribution deal. So it's stuck in the, it's stuck in the warehouse on the shelf. So that messes up. Yeah. So Paul, one of Paul's big bugbears was that the Mondays got blamed for Factory going under. And he says that wasn't, it wasn't the Mondays. Can you back that up too? Yeah, it's not true. I mean, we, we kind of got pushed to go and do that album, even though we'd only half written it, because I don't think New Order had done an album for a while. So they relied on New Order and us for a little bit of funding because they'd signed all these bands. So we were pushed into it. When we actually split up, Factory owed us money. When the Factory went bankrupt, they owed us, they owed us money. So it, no, it was quite the opposite. And it did, that album didn't cost a lot to do. People think it was Barbados, it cost a lot of money. It didn't. The studio was cheap and the flights were cheap. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't that. Because we got a choice, they said to us, Manchester, Amsterdam or Barbados. So Manchester was out, never got anything done. Amsterdam. Can you imagine? Uh, still be there, won't we? Yeah, let's do Barbados. <laughs> Little did we know. But no, I we had a good time. I, I have nothing but pleasant memories from it. Paul wasn't doing heroin at that point, was he? Or was he? Had he just started? Right, this is what I think. This is what, just before we went, I'd caught him. We'd, we'd, we'd rehearsed in New Order's place in Cheat Mill. And, had, and it's the one and only time I ever saw him do it. The first time he did it. I just said, oh, you dick. And he went, and you know, and he was like, mm, you know, and uh, we spoke about that since. And he said he was embarrassed, but obviously once he'd had it, he wasn't embarrassed. And I think he'd been dabbling before then. I could be wrong, though. And I thought the stomach pains might have been something to do. But, but I'm just, I don't know. I've got, I can't base it anything at all, only gut instinct. It probably yeah, was. But... Well, he, he says that he, he first picked up heroin when he found out that Alison had cheated which would be a year after he got married, which would be, he got married in the summer of 1990. So that would have been like the summer of 91. When was Yes, Please? 
was it 92 January 92 was it 93 92 so he was already using then at that point 92 yeah yeah oh there you go then yeah so you're right then yeah 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 so that was we got Easting so yeah so that'd be right then yeah yeah that would make sense so tell me what it felt like to be really to witness your best friend just spiraling into the depths of, of despair and addiction and and going from being great to being terrible what was that like yeah, it's gut-wrenching yeah that's the thing as well i think it might have been the allison thing and i think maybe and this could this is just my opinion i think that was an excuse i think he was using it because he could see the demise of his dream ending and the band and he'd lost control and also that he could we all knew it was ending Obviously, he took it a lot worse than all. We all took it quite bad, but he took it. I always thought it was an excuse. I could be wrong, you know. No, I think you're else. right. I, I think you're right, definitely. I think it was probably always only a matter of time before he picked it up. Yeah. And it, yeah, it was really, really sad, disappointing because I knew as well, not only was it my best mate I was losing, but also that uh, from a selfish point of view, I knew that was definitely the end of the band, you know what I mean? If Paul wasn't functioning you know it wasn't happening yeah. and he knew that I knew that he knew that I knew that I knew that he knew you know right and how did you cope with that how did you how did you relate to him once he'd started using how did you deal with it I just started well I pretty much just used to drink more so drinking was my thing and it's funny because I said like last time we spoke that we ended up in both ended up in Meadowbrook mine was only a day thing I only went he was in there like proper section. I only went one for a day, you know. Mine wasn't really, a, you know, like his, and mine ended up being because a, a malaria tablet had taken. But did you say to him, "What are you doing?" You like, did you actually articulate how you? Yeah, feeling? but you know what? You can't tell you, you, you know, you don't care. You know, he used to lie to me, and I used to go, "I know you're lying." And he knew that I knew he was lying, and you knew that, I, like, I knew that I knew that he knew that he was like, you know. It, but yeah, and it, but we just kind of just, but. I knew why, why he was doing it, why he was dealing with it, and but all kind of doing our own things. We had our own friends by then, all doing different things anyway. So tell me about the the, the day that it all ended. The the that one day, what what happened that day? I don't remember it actually. Well, was it not the record company meeting when Sean just didn't show up? Wasn't that really when it all fell apart? No, I think that was one. No, we carried on for a while after that. I think. But it'd be, it'd be, we'd be, yeah, but it'd been, not long after, but it'd been coming, we'd been rehearsing at different times and I wasn't getting on with Paul then. I think me and Mark would do the day shift, Paul and Sean would do the night shift. I think, I, could, I can't remember, I know it was a bit, it was definitely, we were just doing recording in there, bit, one, or one at a time. And then, I remember Paul said, when you, when you started six, I said, when you started two and you know, no, no one would agree, no one would budge and give in. Right, and what were yeah. you actually, reco what were you recording at that point? Because this was after you. Just demos, just demos for a new album. Do you have any of that uh, material? Do you have any of those songs still? No, Sam H had it all, so I don't know what happened to it. It was a weird time because we all kind of buried our heads in the sand and it was in denial, but we all, we were, we were in denial, but we were, we were in denial with each other. But all, you know, we all knew it was over, but with each other we was in denial it was over. And I think since Paul was doing that, then I was going out drinking more, and I'd, and I'd met Vanessa and we'd had moved, and we just wasn't, we, we, me and Paul didn't have a relationship anymore either. And then he had a full-on <laughs> breakdown, and you were 
very you were a really good friend to him at that point you were, went to see him every day like how how was that time for you yeah it was really sad i mean he, he was we had a good laugh in the in the in the nut house we had a good you know we went to go and see him we had a good laugh some of the stories were telling about people but it's it was really sad that you know i he didn't seem you know he was completely aware why he was there he wasn't like he was you know which is which is even kind of you know more upsetting. But it it me me and Paul struggled to uh, function just on a on a on a on a normal basis for life. You know he dealt with it with heroin. I dealt with it with alcohol. Or both had anxiety. Both we both struggled to function. Say so very different but very similar. I can't do anything. I can't really can't do anything. Honestly, I've struggled. I'm just useless at everything. But that's part of, you know, the band doing everything for us as well, you know. So, you used to go and see him and he'd grown a, a long James Anderson beard. Did you, did you think he would get out of that? Did you think it was temporary? Or were you worried that that, that was it? He was stuck in, like, a mental health? Yeah, I thought, he, I thought he wouldn't get out of it. I don't remember him having a beard. Do you not? He grew a big James Anderson long beard, yeah. Did he? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember that. That's weird, I don't remember that. You've got to have a beard, though, if you're in them places, haven't you? You've got to have a beard and, and, and chain smoke. Do you feel like his breakdown was brought on by losing the band or by being a heroin addict? Like, what, what do you think was the cause, fundamentally? The band. The band. That's why he's a band. I think, I think the band and... When you like... Anxious and not being able to function on a basic level. A band's a great, a great family for you because it's really easy. Things are done for you. You get excuses made for you, you know. And uh, once that ends, you're out in the real world and exposed, and it's and it's you know. But uh, I think he was more open about not being able to function. I tried to say I could, but he didn't. And I think he, I hid it better than him. Did you ever feel like you were on the verge of a breakdown as well? Apart from your malaria tablet episode? Yeah, a few times, yeah. I had a couple of episodes. But then I just think it was his baby, you know what I mean? It was his thing. In that time, you went to music yeah. college. Yeah, across America, me and Vanessa, I got back and I said to my mum, I need something to do. So she booked me on that course in Utah. I said to Paul, and she told Linda, Linda said, oh, Paul, you do it as well. So we went on this music production course and met him it. Right, so so this was this was in 1998. So there'd been a period of about five or six years where he was just languishing. He was with, with Estrella for a while, in and out of using heroin. And then the, the two of you went on this music production course. Were you then aspiring to maybe do something together again when you were doing that course? Hmm, don't know. I don't know. We just ended up, and it, we we just we were just being friends again. That was the most important. That was the main thing, and having a laugh together. We both had them little Volvo cars, and we used to drive up there in the day. So I remember it. It was that was a good time as well. Yeah. It were good days. No, we were just being friends. We were just being friends again more than anything. Yeah, he had a white one with lights that came up like that. He had a white one. I had a blue one. Yeah. So 1999 reformation of the band right so you must have been excited about that or were you worried like how what were you what were your feelings around that 
you hadn't worked together for six years. PD and Mark weren't involved, but it was you, Paul, Sean, Bez, Roetta, Wags, and Ben Leach. I remember being in the studio and recreating all the songs with Ben Leach. Me and Paul sat around the computer with Ben. Lee Mullen as well was involved, wasn't he? And Lee Mullen percussion, that's all I remember. I don't really remember anything else about bad times. I remember recreating all the backing tracks, spending a month in the studio just doing that with, with Ben, with Posh Scouts. I don't remember anything else from, from that era, to be honest with you. Don't. I, you know what? I don't remember lots of things that were raised. Paul remembers everything. I don't remember half the things. Because I, I, maybe it's just a way of dealing with it and erased it all, but I don't remember lots of stuff I don't remember. Paul talks, tells a very funny story um, about <laughs> when you did a gig in Wembley and you said to him after the show, I've done it, I've done it. I've... <laughs> Tell me that story. You can't talk about that these days. I've done it, I've done it, I wanted to play Wembley. And that's what, that's what I... <laughs> Come on, what did he say? See if it's the same. I can't really remember. You, you'd done this gig at Wembley, it was your first ever gig at Wembley, you went up to Paul and you went, I've done it, I've done it. And he said, yeah, we finally played Wembley. And you said, no, 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 I finally wore women's underwear on stage for the whole <laughs> 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 that right? Was that the Wembley gig? All right. Is, is that how you remember it? <laughs> no, I don't remember that, but I'm not... I'm... We were Spinal Tap. all we have for you this week we're playing out with scar 3000 from the paul riders big arm album radiator which is out now if you join us on youtube next sunday night february 25th you will be able to see the video version of this episode at 8 p.m uk time and then straight after that at around nine o'clock Gaz is going to be live streaming, taking questions and also maybe playing some music for us. So please do join us on the Glistening Stories YouTube channel. That's next Sunday, February 25th, 8pm for the video, 9pm for the live stream. I promised to name check our patrons, so these are the people who are helping us to bring these episodes to you every week. We are absolutely so grateful to these following people. Stephen Wood, Jeff Tidy, Steve Ness, Michael Smith, Simon Gilroy, Mark Duffy, Mark Musgrove, Mike Thomas, Chris Barton, Paul Larkin, David Green, Joseph Davis, Kieran Cuddy, Lee Deval, Dean Whitaker, Tom Ryan, Nick Earl, Nick G, Stephen Merriman and the lovely Jacoby Good. There are some perks coming very soon for these amazing patrons. Please sign up yourself to join our patrons club. Even if you can't afford to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you in the club. Go to patreon.com forward slash the ball right takes. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook too. And have a really brilliant week. We will be back next week, same time, same place, with another special bonus episode. Big love and thanks to Gaz Whelan, and of course, to the man himself, the late, great Paul Anthony Big Arm Rider.
Productions. <laughs> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>